1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Is
2: your hot pocket cold in the middle? It's frozen. But it can be served boiling lava hot. Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette.
3: Coming up, the gigantic new iPhone has us thinking about the history of women's very ineffective pockets.
2: They're more decorative than anything, frankly.
3: And we talk with nerd emperor Hank Green. All that plus homework from comedian Cameron Esposito and your nerd confessions. Right here on Nerdette.
2: The iPhone 6 and especially the iPhone 6 Plus and the new giant Samsung phone tablet phablets thing have some dudes on the internet lamenting about how they can't fit their smartphones into their pockets anymore, which is pretty funny if you ask me.
3: Because welcome to our world, fellas. We're not the only ones who noticed this. Ariana Tobin is a digital producer for Marketplace. She dug into the history of women's pockets to figure out exactly when did this happen? When did fashion win out over function when it comes to women carrying stuff
4: around? women's pockets are small. It's not an accident of history that this happened. It's like so deeply related to every other aspect of economy and culture. Everything in clothing, everything in design has some series of thought behind it. And in this case, women's fashion, there are countless academics who have studied the thought and design behind what we wear. I'm looking at what I'm wearing today. I don't think I have a single pocket on me.
3: Yeah, I have none. I'm wearing no pockets right now.
4: I have saggy pockets. They're not functional. They're decorative pockets.
3: (laughs) All right, so now that we've gotten the lay of the land of everyone's current pocket situation, (laughs) you even did an Instagram video that cracked me up where you showed how difficult this was.
4: It was the biggest phone that I could find in our office. It was like a Samsung Galaxy, which are notoriously huge. And I was impressed. I was actually impressed that it fit in my pocket at all. It didn't last for very long, like it fell out after a couple of seconds, but I got it to stay.
3: Let's rewind to the earliest pocket history that you have here in your research, which is the 1700s. What's going on with pockets?
4: So pockets were very important to women in the 17th and 18th centuries, but they weren't pockets like we know them today. They were just like one of the many layers of undergarments that women wore under their clothes. It was like a big bag that they would tie around their waist. And then you'd have a hole in the different layers of skirts that women could reach through to reach into this bag. And it was important because women back then, like most people back then, didn't have a ton of personal space. Unless you were extremely wealthy, a pocket was often the most safe, most secure, most private space that anyone really even had. So back then, women would spend a bunch of time embroidering pockets, turning them into just really special objects that they'd carry on with them always.
3: And the photos are beautiful. And we'll put a link on our website to make sure people can see them. But I love the idea that they were making these really beautiful objects that were just for them, that were hidden beneath these oppressive layers of clothing. But they made them reflective of their own personalities and maybe more unique to them than they could their outer clothing.
4: Yeah, it was a private piece of clothing. Like it wasn't something that other people saw, but people spent time and energy personalizing them. As you're saying, like they made it a valuable object to hold the things that were valuable to them.
2: This is eighteenth century pocket rebellion, is what you're saying.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yes. Eighteenth century pocket rebellion. This is kind of tangential to it, but it was interesting. I realized that the phrase pickpocket, these pockets were separate items. Like they were separate pieces of clothing in women's clothes and in men's clothes. So when you were a pickpocket, you would like actually physically just grab the bag that was the pocket. Like you weren't pulling the things out of the bag, the people would just like run away with the bag.
2: Wow, that's fascinating. And then we
4: end up with Are we moving on to Greek goddesses? Is that our next step here? (laughs) Yes. So what changed wasn't necessarily the need for pockets. It was the change in fashion. So there was a big trend toward the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. It was like a neoclassical trend. The big thing was looking like a Greek goddess. and. I was told by this fashion historian that I talked with that they would actually go through and, like, look through literature of ancient Greeks, and there was no reference to pockets, so they made clothing that didn't have them. And also the style of, like, a flowing Greek toga gown was just long and fluid. It was supposed to be these, like, very sleek lines, and these big layers of skirts that women had worn until that point didn't fit with that admiration for the Greeks and the classics. So... Lines got sleeker and pockets went away. And at the same time, men are just adding pockets willy-nilly, right? Pockets are all over the guy's clothes. Pockets in their jackets, pockets in their pants, pockets everywhere. Definitely a gender divide in the pocket world. And to make up for it, women started carrying around tiny little handbags that they called reticules. That was the advent of carrying an external pocket. That's so interesting. It makes perfect sense as they would coincide because like you have to
2: put your stuff somewhere. And I feel like we're still mired in the same problem where it's like I would love to not carry a purse if I'm going out at any given time, but I can't fit all of the things in my pockets. So here's (laughs) the problem.
4: Yeah. And it's interesting because these great big smartphones, it's the first time that men are asking that question for real. The Merce is making a comeback, perhaps. And I've seen advertisements for different technology companies that they're going back to the 17th century and making like pockets that people can add into their clothing. <laughs> it kind of looks like a fanny pack. None of them that I've seen are particularly stylish, <laughs> but I definitely had a few of those emailed my way.
3: Is the solution maybe that we're going to all start wearing internet connected glasses and watches and other things that that are closer to being gender neutral on our bodies. I mean, we all look silly wearing Google Glass. We all will look a little silly wearing an Apple Watch. So maybe it's leveling the playing field to have things go beyond the phone.
4: Yeah, I really wonder because I mean, I'm really excited to not have to carry anything. Like so having everything in one place that is just constantly on my body would be just the best situation that I could come up with. It feels like that's kind of a gender neutral goal.
3: Ariana Tobin is a digital producer for Marketplace. She gets to do a lot of cool stuff for them, like look into the history of Choose Your Own
2: Adventure books. We'll put some links at nerdappodcast.com and we'll have to have her back again soon.
3: Still to come, a conversation with nerd in chief Hank Green and homework from comedian Cameron Esposito. You're listening to Nerd I know we often say that a guest we have on is the best nerd or a nerd of the best kind, but this actually can't be more true than it is with Hank Green. Hank of the Vlogbrothers, so John Green is his brother. John Green, he's a pretty
2: well-known author for young adult novels especially. He recently wrote The Fault in Our Stars, which also became a movie. And he's got this book called Looking for Alaska, which I haven't yet read, but it has Alaska in the title, so that's exciting.
3: They were having conversations online on YouTube in the early days of YouTube. They were some of the pioneers when it came to online video. And now Hank Green has more shows than we can even mention here. He has SciShow, which is a great explainer YouTube channel about the science of everything, the science of people with red hair, of chocolate, of why teenagers are sleepy in the morning. Anything and everything you can think of that you've always wondered about, Hank will explain to you on SciShow Nerdfighters is their community, and YouTube is their community, and we're going to talk a lot about that idea of community online with him and also get some pretty excellent homework. I wonder how you explain what you do if you meet someone at a cocktail party.
1: I often just lie. <laughs> I will say I work for YouTube, or I make uh, educational video is often what I'll say because that people sort of get that. I make educational online video, then people are a little more confused, and I say, people use it in classrooms and to learn and to study, and teachers use it as an aid, and then people are like, oh, okay, yes, I see. When someone else introduces me and says, Hank, he makes YouTube videos for a living, that becomes much more confusing, because then you have to get into the business model of how YouTube works, which is weird to me because no one asks those questions when somebody says, I make TV shows for a living. (laughs) Everyone understands that money comes from somewhere in television. And in the exact same way, it comes from somewhere on YouTube. It's just, for some reason, less clear. And to be clear, if you're wondering, it's the same thing. (laughs) It's advertisements. That's how it works.
3: And the more people that see the ad, the more pennies you get per video.
1: Yes. (laughs) Pennies on pennies on pennies.
3: I love so many of these shows that you're involved with. I love SciShow. I love the Crash Course videos. I'm in dire need often of the How to Adult videos, one of your newer projects. Oh, yeah. What's the difference for you, or do you have a preference when it comes to some that you're on camera for and things like How to Adult where you're involved but more as a producer and less as a host?
1: Well, there's only so many hours in the day. John and I, my brother John makes all these things with me realized that eventually we wouldn't be able to keep making more cool content if it was reliant on us. Since we had content that was successful, we could use that successful content to help enable more good content to be made that wouldn't necessarily require lots of our time. We either have people come to us with ideas, usually people that we've known in the online video world previously, or we will go to people with ideas and say, uh, basically, we want to give you this very small amount of money (laughs) (laughs) to help you get this thing off the ground. And in comparison to the sort of grants that YouTube has done and Google have done for content creators, it's just minuscule. It's like several orders of magnitude smaller. But really what people need is sometimes they need someone to believe in them and to believe that the thing that they're doing is cool. And sometimes they need just enough that they can spend 10 hours a week on something instead of two. And the fact that we can help with equipment and also with a little bit of startup capital, it doesn't just give you an opportunity to free up some time from your other revenue generating time, which is generally called work. It also allows you to realize that this is a cool thing that someone is valuing it. And so it's valuable enough that someone is giving me money to do it. And that frees them to believe in the thing. I think that's one of the biggest pieces of why it's worked for us to give a little bit of money to people.
3: Someone in your orbit is actually a friend of our show. Emily from Brain Scoop was the guest at our live podcast. And we love everything about Brain Scoop. And I was wondering about that, whether it's the push or pull when you're finding these people and bringing them into your world. I think of you guys as sort of the nerdier, more awesome version of what Oprah has done. In that, you know, Rachel Ray, Dr. Oz, that Nate guy, all sort of started as being anointed, I guess, in some way, or given at least a shot from her brand to branch out. And you're doing a similar thing on YouTube with more awesomeness, I would say.
1: Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Sure, I'll take that. I'm a huge Oprah fan. Not in that I have ever watched her show, (laughs) but from a business person perspective. She remained independent and owned all of her own things, and that's just very unusual in... Hollywood, and I hope that it will continue to be more normal as we progress in the new media space.
3: You were early to a lot of these platforms that are now oversaturated with content (laughs) of varying degrees of quality. So I'm curious how you curate your own media consumption. Who do you look to to help you navigate the fact that the internet often to a lot of us feels like pointing a fire hose at a teacup, the teacup being our brain and the fire hose being how much information there is to
1: potentially consume. I think I do it like everybody else. I'm on Facebook and my friends send me links. I follow a lot of different blogs on Tumblr. And uh, the only maybe slightly different thing is that because I run VidCon, which is an online video conference, I do sort of have to keep up on things that maybe I wouldn't normally watch, but it's important for me to understand different worlds of online media. So I will often end up watching and get surprisingly addicted to content that is very clearly not designed for me. Like beauty content is very popular on YouTube. And so I never watched that, but then sort of like, okay, I have to sort of get it. So I'll watch it for VidCon's sake. And two hours later, I'm like, well, you know, this really isn't that different from what I do. The place you end up is the same, which is that we're talking about what it's like to be a person in the world. We started from a point of like, I wanted to show you how to put on the eyeliner, but by the end of it, you're just connected to the personality of the person making the content. And it's much more about the personality than the tutorial. And so it becomes a thing that I find myself spending time watching. So I get, I think, a little bit of a more diverse look because I'm required by my business to have that more diverse look. But it turns out that I, a surprising amount of time, actually really enjoy the content. The fire hose is definitely a fire hose for me. It's right up in my face and it can be really intense. It's also amazing. You know, that we live in a world of infinite content. Effectively, it's infinite. So it's really weird to see what people watch when you give them the opportunity to watch pretty much anything.
3: We've come a long way from the three TV channels. That's for yeah. sure. I wonder if. You can help me unpack the phrase YouTube community when it comes to things like something bubbling up from YouTube as its initial platform and becoming a conversation that ends up in maybe broadcast news or things like that, you often hear this shorthand. <laughs> the YouTube community is reacting to Sam Pepper, for example. Yeah. Something that yeah. you signed on to a letter with over a hundred thousand other people signed onto that letter. Yeah. What does that community look like to you? What does it mean to you when someone says YouTube is a community?
1: There's two different things. There's the YouTube community, which is, of course, amorphous and now headed into a space where it's kind of difficult to call it one community. In the early days of the internet, I remember thinking everybody on the internet was sort of the same, and we were all there for the same things. If you had an internet connection, you were a certain type of person because... People who weren't nerds didn't have the internet. Right. And so it was just, it was a lot of talk about science fiction and Magic the Gathering and Doctor Who and The Next Generation stuff. At that moment, there was an internet community that was very much all the same stuff. And then the internet became a big, diverse, crazy thing. It's hard to celebrate internet culture now because the culture of the internet is in a very real way, the culture of culture. And that is becoming more the case with online video, where the culture of online video, the the culture of YouTube, the community of YouTube is starting to feel a lot like the culture of the world. And the media of YouTube is starting to feel a lot more like mainstream media. Not because it's morphed into mainstream media, but because the mainstream has come to it. So there's a sad part of me that is worried that the YouTube community... Is sort of a phrase that no longer makes sense because it's so diverse and there are so many different groups of people that don't even know about each other and as i you know am sort of required by my job to get really deep into a lot of different youtube communities it becomes very clear that there are a bunch of them and that even if they don't think about each other that much the things that they might think about each other might not all be positive But when it comes to the thing that I actually think of as the YouTube community, there is a thing there that I cherish and am proud to be a part of and will always want to be a part of. And I think I will always be a part of. It's just that that term is too general for what it is. And that thing is the group of people who defined the initial space of YouTube. There are new people joining that community, but there are also things happening on YouTube that are pretty external from it. And I think that I would say that in a lot of ways, Sam Pepper was pretty external to the YouTube community. Now, there are other people in the YouTube community who also are not awesome people. But when I think of the YouTube community, the people that I think of are like my buds from the early days of YouTube, people who were doing this in 2007 and 2008, and people who appreciate the culture that was defined during those times. And that is a different thing now from what YouTube is, which is, for me a little sad, but it is I think inevitable. And I also think that it's a mainstream cultural thing that is actually really good for culture and for art and for creation and for creators. So I can't really complain about it.
3: It reminds me of the Yogi Berra quote, it's too crowded nobody goes there anymore. <laughs> as being the way that the web yeah. seems to cycle through communities. So if yeah. something becomes too big and too commercial often then something springs up on the side and then you gravitate towards that. So for me, it was Twitter early on was a place to kind of just communicate like you were saying with early online video. Just communicate with a few friends. That's all it felt like yep. We're using the space. And now it's every brand of toothpaste and soda pop wants to tweet at you. And so then you find a new space to go and have a conversation with just your friends.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the really frustrating thing is not so much when soda pop comes along. But when people are suddenly in your community and their values are very different from yours, and it can be all about money or it can be all about power, and it can be even worse than that. And I think that communities that grow almost invariably struggle with that. When the values that were defined as core to the community start to not be celebrated by people who are seen as part of the community, and so the values of that community start to change, without any control of the people who feel like they should have some say over what this thing is. I think that there's a fair amount of frustration there. But as you say, there are always other places to go. And YouTube is great in that it allows for a great many different places to be. It is not homogenous at all. And so it's very easy to have a very different experience on YouTube, depending on what you're into.
3: Definitely. I was wondering if we could talk a little about 2D glasses... Can you explain those?
1: A couple of years ago, 3D movies started becoming a thing. I liked to go to 3D movies. My wife did not, but I didn't want to like go to the movies and you know say, okay, well, you go watch the 2D version, I'll go watch the 3D version, <laughs> and I'll see you in two hours. So I knew how 3D movies worked because I'm a perpetually curious nerd. And so I was like, well, if I just take these glasses and I take one of the lenses out, knock one lens out of the other pair, and then have the same lens twice then you won't get a 3D movie. It'll just be a slightly darker 2D movie. That's one of the other problems people have with 3D movies is that they are slightly darker because they block some of the light. So I did that. It worked. And I was like sort of proud of myself, like, oh, look at me hacking the infrastructure here. (laughs) And then I was like, maybe other people want these. And I emailed a company in China that makes 3d glasses and i was like hey could we do that except the same polarization in each lens and they were like well that would ruin the glasses it would be (laughs) 2d then and i was like you got me That is exactly what I want. And they were like, our job is not to ask questions. And they sent me 5,000 of them, all of which I sold. And then I have continued to sell lots of 2D glasses. And I sell far more of them when new 3D movies come out. It's very easy to see when there's a new 3D movie coming out because there will be a huge spike in the sales of the glasses.
3: You're saving people's eyesight and their relationships by creating (laughs) these 2D glasses so that couples can see these (laughs) movies together. Yeah. Is there any piece of technology you've expected would exist by now that doesn't maybe a life hack that's simple like the one you just mentioned 2d glasses or something more significant that you just really thought by 2014 we'd have figured out and why do you think it hasn't happened yet
1: i think about these things all the time let's see here's a fairly dumb one i'm surprised that we're not building tons of nuclear power plants in the united states and that's not because I think that the current designs we have for nuclear reactors are really great. I think it's because we stopped designing new nuclear reactors in like 1960. Yeah. Which is weird. Like, we didn't stop building them, we stopped innovating in that space. That just shocked me. It's almost entirely because of PR. Yeah, That's obviously a long conversation that I could have a significant debate with people about. I feel the same way about genetically modified food. I feel like that line of research has been significantly dampened by weird public relations. And also, I think that back in the 90s, I felt like it was going to be so easy to do genetic modifications and so easy to genetically tailor drugs for individual humans. Everyone thought it was going to come along fast, and it turned out not to. That's not a PR problem. That was a problem with us misunderstanding how complicated our bodies were. Sure. It turns out the genome is very complicated. More complicated than we thought. And I also am a little surprised that we don't have fusion power, frankly. (laughs) When I was 10, I was pretty sure that was going to be a thing by 2010, for sure. And I'm surprised that it's taken so long to get electric cars. But here we are, and now I can't really complain about that anymore, which is very nice
3: yeah we're inching towards that I remember my dad was at the 1939 World's Fair and there was a flying car prototype and so he spent (laughs) the rest of his life having seen one at nine years old thinking well maybe somebody will make a go of this nope any day now (laughs) any day well Hank Green thank you so much for joining us on the nerd podcast it was a thrill to have you we're big fans
1: of pretty much everything you do well thank you very much it was a pleasure
2: I have to say, Trisha, I'm just so happy about this 2D glasses thing. I'm very easily nauseated, and two dimensions are just fine for me. That's enough for you? Yeah.
1: Here's your homework from Hank Green. Just go and Google Hubble Deep Field and watch that for a while. I think that's something that I do every six months, no matter what, is I just like have to go look at the Hubble Deep Field and Ultra Deep Field images and say like, oh, right. Okay. Perspective. Yes. That's your homework for the evening, everyone. Go feel how insignificant you are.
3: (laughs) That's the comforting and terrifying thing about space. That's why I love space so much. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I have a lot of people who tell me that they are not comforted by that. And I'm very comforted by it. I'd like to know what the difference is between those two things.
3: Yeah, those are pretty binary responses, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. Space,
3: a final frontier.
2: We also got homework from Cameron Esposito.
3: She's a comedian who has deep roots in Chicago and is making a splash on the national scene with her new album, Same Sex Symbol, which is an excellent title for a comedy album. Here's her homework for you.
5: Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Terminator films, but they are my favorite movies. The Terminator films really cover our interaction with computers throughout our entire time of talking to them. The first Terminator movie is amazing because it really happened um, right at the beginning of the internet.
4: Come with me if you want to live.
5: And if you notice, there's a dance club in this movie that's called Tech Noir. And that's because this is, movie was made at a time where we didn't understand what the internet would be. We were like, maybe it could be a dance club. And I love that about that movie. It's a great interaction with robots and how they are going to be in our lives. Now, let's say Terminator 2. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs>
3: You forgot to say please.
5: It's even more interesting because now the robots can change and shapeshift and be in our lives in a different way. Now that's kind of what happened. I mean, we have teeny robots that we carry around in our pockets with us. But also this movie includes a lot of computer animation and the facial morphing technology that they use in this movie at the time, had only ever been used in Michael Jackson's black and white video. So it's this moment where we're reintroducing to people like this is what computers can do for movies. And now, I mean, if you see an action movie now, so much of it digital effects, but they still are using practical effects in a lot of this movie so that's another thing I love about it. When there's two Sarah Connors on screen that's because Linda Hamilton just has a twin sister and she's a school teacher so she took time off to learn how to do a one-arm shotgun reload. And Terminator 3 is the first instance of a female Terminator and I think that kind of also reflects what was happening for women in film. Are you okay? Do you want me to call 911? I like this car. You You know, Sarah Connor was such a tough character, and she really trained in Terminator 2 to get her bod back in shape after having a baby. And her arms are really developed, and that's the first time that we got to see a woman really work out for a film role. And Terminator 3 has Kristana Loken in it. She's the female Terminator. And what she does in that movie is important, I think, for something like Game of Thrones. You know, we'd never have a Brienne of Tarth if we didn't have a female Terminator, the Terminatrix. And you can skip Terminator Salvation. It's not good. But there's a new one coming out. I'm excited. Anyway, I would just watch these movies back to back and just understand that As humans, we're always trying to figure out how we're going to interact with the world around us. And the things that scare us the most are the things that come out in action sci-fi movies. We literally fight them. And I think the biggest fight that we are having right now as humans is technology. We're not sure how it's going to interact with our world. So check those movies out.
3: Now it's time to hear from you. Nerd confessions. This is one of our favorite types of nerd,
1: a word nerd. Hey Nerdette, this is Benjamin from Chicago. I am a total nerd when it comes to misspellings or typos, especially when they are Celtic. I'm an editor by trade. I check these things out for my job and I get paid for it, but I really like it when I don't get paid. So I live along Sedgwick Street in Chicago. And there is a house along the street that, right across the street, it says Sedgwick, which only has one E, and it's S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K, but on their address sign, it says S-E-D-G-E-W-I-C-K. Why they didn't look across the street and see how it was spelled, I'm not sure, but I am very happy that they didn't because I'm a total geek about that kind of stuff. That is my nerd confession, and... Yeah, hope you guys have a good
2: day. I feel very strongly about this as well.
3: Call 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome.
2: Call us and leave your nerd confession at 312-600-5638.
3: Thanks to Ariana Tobin, Hank Green, and Cameron Esposito for joining us this week. You can find us at
2: nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the left
3: side of the homepage.
2: You can talk with us on Twitter at nerdappodcast. Like us on Facebook.
3: We're also at nerdatpodcast on Instagram. It's where we post mini book reviews. So if you're at the bookstore listening to a podcast... Pop over to Instagram and see what we've been reading lately.
2: The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson.
3: With help from Joe Dassault, Patrick Burns, and Iris Lynn.
2: Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
3: Our home stations are WBEZ and WCQS.
2: Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.
3: Throw some stars and write us a review on iTunes. It really helps spread the good word about Nerdette.
2: Like the excellent Nielsen Kenneth did.
3: We appreciate all the stars, the retweets, the shares, and just hanging out with you on the interwebs.
2: Yes, but there's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or you work for a good nerd who wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email us at nerdettpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities.
3: Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by The Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.